Life and Crimes is brought to you by the subscribers of The Herald Sun. So if you're a subscriber, thank you. Your support helps us create shows like this. And if you're not a subscriber, a subscription to The Herald Sun gives you access to premium articles, including my weekly column, digital versions of the newspaper, and much more. If you like our work and want to sign up, go to heraldsun.com.au slash andrewrule, one word, and click on any article to begin. The criminal world had changed. All of a sudden, drugs were in and safe-cracking was out. Being lazy, he popped them in the shallow grave, close to a house that he was known to use, covered them with sand which foxes and dogs could dig through easily, and they were found. This week, we embark on a multi-part series, the Mr Asia case, which is the story of Australia's first international drug baron, Terry Clark, alias Terry Sinclair, and the murder of his longtime partner in crime, Martin Johnston, in England in late 1979. Before the Ice Age was the Heroin Age. In the 1970s, drugs took over from the old-time safe crackers and armed robbers. It was a brave new world of massive profits and greed beyond imagining. One of the first into this scene was Terry Clark, a man who had been a small-time New Zealand police informer, but who always dreamed of being a big-time operator. Terry Clark, the kid from Gisborne in the North Island, teamed up with a smoothie called Martin Johnston to do a massive import of Thai Buddha sticks. These are marijuana sticks. And he did that import on a yacht called the Brigadoon back in the mid-70s. And that importation made Johnson and Clark about a million dollars each, and that bankrolled their importation of heroin into Australia, which was worth perhaps $100 million on the streets. Suddenly, Clark was big time. In 1976, he was arrested in New Zealand for allegedly importing heroin in cigarette cartons from Fiji. But he jumped bail and he went to Sydney. There was very little problem getting to Sydney in those days. There was no need for passports. And he had a string of false identities and he was able to live his life in Sydney and other places in Australia without the New Zealand authorities catching up with him. And that worked out pretty well for him for a while. But he never gave up his dream of becoming a bigger, badder, better gangster. And so what he would do was he imported helpers from New Zealand because he trusted other Kiwis, or he thought he trusted other Kiwis. In fact, he didn't really trust them much. And he got other people in to do his dirty work so it would separate him from handling the actual heroin. Clark, alias Terry Sinclair, alias several other names, called his gang The Organisation, which is a fairly pretentious name. He saw himself as some sort of CEO, as some sort of corporate mover and shaker. But in fact, he was just another crook. But the seeds of his own destruction lay in his own greed, his ruthlessness and his ego. Which brings us to the story of the death of two of Clark's employees, a married couple called Douglas and Isabel Wilson. Okay, it's now 1978. We're at Rye on the Mornington Peninsula, outside Melbourne, where the bay joins the ocean. There's a little dog called Mitzi. Mitzi is a bitzer. Little dog, loves chasing rabbits and kangaroos around the scrub 
at Rye, which then was a fairly undeveloped place. Mitzi's owner was a retired meat inspector called Dennis Brown, who would go down to Rye on weekends to his little fibro shack in Danny Street, Rye. Dennis and his wife and Mitzi had a shack at Lot 55 in Danny Street. At Lot 57 and Lot 59 were undeveloped. They were discovered in tea tree. And, of course, man and dog would go walking through the scrub, chasing rabbits and having a look around. In fact, Dennis kept some beehives there. And they were all, always poking about on weekends, having a look. And on one occasion in 1978, Dennis notices that underneath a tea tree in Lot 59, someone has dug a long, narrow hole. And they've covered it up with tea tree branches. And he thought, that's funny. And every time he walked past with his dog on other occasions, other weekends, he would just have a look and notice that the hole was still there and still covered up with tea tree branches. And this goes on for a while. And in April 1979, many months later, he notices that the hole has been deepened and covered up again with some fresh tea tree. This is curiouser and curiouser. The following month, on the 18th of May, a Friday, Dennis Brown has come down from Melbourne, as he often does on Fridays, and he's gone for a walk, as he usually does, with Mitzi the dog, and Mitzi runs over to where the hole had been and starts scratching at the sand. And Dennis walks over and he notices that, in fact, the hole has been filled in. Now, when there was a hole there, Dennis, who had worked in the meatworks all his working life, and was a street-smart sort of fellow, he noticed that it was long and narrow and that it looked a little too much like a grave. Now that it was filled in, he wondered what had been buried there. And he called Mitzi over to his Kingswood car and they hopped in the car and he drove straight to the local police and told them what he'd found. And a little while later, the police came down with a long, thin metal rod and they jammed it into the ground and they smelt something very bad. Then the homicide squad came. Dennis didn't hang around. He didn't want to see what was buried there. What was buried there were two bodies, one on top of the other, and it was the earthly remains of Douglas Wilson and his wife Isabel. Now, Douglas and Isabel came out of Auckland. Douglas, unlike most petty crooks at that time, was a private schoolboy. He'd gone to Auckland Grammar, the sort of school where a Russell Crowe or his cousin Martin Crowe might have gone... Douglas had had a very good start in life, but he'd managed to screw it up. He'd always fancied bad company and drugs. And after he left Auckland Grammar, he'd gone off to America on what would now be called a gap year. But all he'd done over there was develop a taste for better drugs. And when he got home to Auckland, he dabbled in drugs and then he dabbled in selling drugs. And in fact, when he made acquaintance in the mid-70s, early to mid-70s, with Terry Clark and others, Martin Johnson and other reptiles, he became their middleman for selling marijuana, Thai Buddha sticks, to basically the private schoolboys of Auckland. And he unloaded 40,000 Thai Buddha sticks out of a consignment of 200,000, which made him a pretty good salesman. And that is why, when Terry Clark ended up in Sydney a couple of years later, as already described, when he decided he wanted some hired help in Sydney, he sent for Douglas Wilson who by this stage was married to his schoolgirl sweetheart, Isabel. And when they got to Sydney, Terry Clark didn't like what they'd become. He realised that his faithful servant, Douglas, 
and his wife, Isabel, had become absolute fiends for heroin. Not only they sold heroin, but they used rather too much of it, and they had raging habits. Clark at first tried to get them to go to a private hospital and dry out so that his right-hand people in the heroin trade wouldn't actually be using the drug that they sold. They managed not to uh, go and dry out. They didn't bother going to the private hospital. They didn't dry out. They kept using heroin. And in the end, Clark paid them a hefty retainer and he used to pay them in heroin as well. But he turned against them and they might have sensed this because Clark's started to say things that spooked them a little bit. And one of the things was this. He said to them, oh, I'm going to take you up to Brisbane and we'll go out for a cruise in the islands on uh, my new boat. He had a boat up there. And they were childless, but they were very fond of their pet dog, a Belgian barge dog, a rather neat and handsome animal. And Clark said to them, oh, does he like water? Is he scared of water? And they said, oh, no, he's a barge dog. He's bred to be on boats and water. And then Clark said, well, does he freak out when there's gunfire? Does he like guns? And we'll never know whether he was just joking or whether he meant something sinister. But sure as hell, you can bet that the Wilsons were very worried about that wisecrack and thought he might intend them some harm on the boat trip out in the ocean. And then something happened which brought it all to a head. They were all staying at a hotel in Brisbane called the Gazebo Hotel. And Terry Clark, although he considered himself a cunning, one-step-ahead, smart, cautious, careful, ruthless operator, deep down he was a smart-ass. And he couldn't help himself. And when he signed the register, instead of just putting, you know, T. Sinclair or any of the other aliases that he used, and he had ID, false ID, what he put was Peterson, the name Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N, J. Peterson, as in Joe, as in Joe Bjorki Peterson, the then Queensland Premier, the then legendary Queensland Premier. And not only that, he put after the name Peterson, he put MP, as in Member of Parliament. Now, that was a step too far, because the manager of the hotel saw this in the register and thought, these blokes are having a lend. They're taking the piss. And not only they're taking the piss out of our beloved Premier, Joe Bjorki Peterson, they're probably con men and fraudulent people who are running up a massive champagne bill, which they were, and then they're not going to pay it. They're going to skip out on me. So what the hotel manager did was ring the police. Well, your old-style Queensland detectives turn up and the first thing they find in the room is five and a half grand in cash, which is a lot of money in this era, in 1978. It was a lot of money. It was a year's salary for the average low-grade worker. And then they had a little talk to Terry Clark, alias Terry Sinclair. They had a very vigorous talk with him, really. They went down to his purple Jaguar car, which was another bit of a giveaway, it wasn't exactly travelling incognito to drive a purple Jaguar. And in it, they found a black Magnum pistol. Now, little did they know that was actually a murder weapon. Little did they know on that day that they found it. But soon afterwards, they were to find out. Because they stick Terry Clark and one of his mates, I think Jimmy Shepard, in a cell in Brisbane. And they put a couple of undercover coppers in with them, disguised as prisoners. And Clark and Shepard, although they should have known better, talked in front of the other prisoners the alleged prisoners, who were really undercover coppers. And they made references to drug deals, they made references to all sorts of things that were incriminating. And while this is going on, other detectives have brought in the Wilsons. 
Now, the Wilsons were very spooky already. They haven't had their hit of heroin, so they're starting to get very twitchy. They're very nervous about Terry Clark's intentions towards them. So when the police offer them a place to talk and a comfortable spot for six days, they start to spill their guts. For six days, Douglas Wilson talks to the police. In fact, at the end of it, the police had 112 pages of transcript of what Douglas had said. And in that 112 pages were a lot of very interesting facts, such as that Terry Clark had something like $100 million worth of heroin stashed down in Sydney at French's Forest, such as Terry Clark was on bail and had skipped bail in New Zealand, such as Terry Clark still had a murder weapon in his car, interestingly, the pistol that the police had already found, such as, rumour had it in the organisation that Terry Clark had actually murdered one of his other henchmen, a bloke called Pommy Lewis. While driving up to Brisbane in his purple Jaguar sometime earlier, he had stopped, persuaded Pommy Lewis to hop out and look under the bonnet, supposedly at some mechanical fault, and while poor old Pommy was looking under the bonnet, Terry Clark shot him, rolled him into a ditch, drove away, 100 kilometres away, decided that he hadn't got rid of the body properly, which was true, drove back, found the body, probably under cover of dark by this, puts it in the boot, drives down a bush track, cuts the hands off, smashes his teeth in with a hammer, so the teeth are hard to recognise, and dumps the body out in the bush, and then drives all the way back to Sydney with blood spattered all over his clothes, and manages to tell his new girlfriend about this, except that he said that Pommy Lewis had attacked him, so he had to kill him. All this means that the police in Brisbane, and therefore perhaps some other police around Australia, now have a very clear picture of Terry Clark, alias Terry Sinclair, the Kiwi drug baron. He's a killer, he's a drug runner, he's armed and dangerous. Now, probably that should have been enough to hold him and cause serious charges to be levelled against him. But an interesting thing happened. The Queensland Police and the then National Narcotics Bureau decided in their wisdom for reasons that no one has... A troubled young woman... Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Enable to decipher except it could be corruption. They decided to send Terry Clark back to New Zealand, where he was wanted on bail on rather lesser charges. In New Zealand, he was wanted. He'd been bailed on charges of importing heroin. They weren't unbelievably serious charges compared with murder in Australia, but still they sent him back to New Zealand, where, of course, Terry Clark was quite confident that he could bribe the witnesses in the case and bribe his way out of trouble, which is exactly what happened. This was a dark chapter in Australian law enforcement because it seemed to some people, it seemed in fact to senior Victorian police, that Terry Clark had been able to corrupt key law enforcement people. And this indeed was true because one of the most interesting things that Douglas Wilson told the police in those six days when he was telling them everything 
was that Terry Clark had a very senior customs official on side, an extremely senior person who was paid $25,000 a year, which was then a fortune, the price of a house, and would also pay him extra for big favours. And Douglas Wilson's information was absolutely correct. So correct, sadly, that that very same official that he was pointing to leaked the fact that Douglas and Isabel Wilson were leaking against Clark. And that same official put this information back down the line to Clark and Clark then knew that Douglas and Isabel Wilson had betrayed him and was able to arrange their murder, which is another story. So, Terry Clark, alias Sinclair, has been told by his senior customs source that Douglas and Isabel Wilson have lagged on him and he knows that they have to go. He, he forms a view that he must murder them to uh, get rid of them and also as a lesson to anyone else in his organisation that they must not talk. So he seeks some help. He goes to see a man called Robert Trimboli. Now, Robert Trimboli was an Italian chap from Griffith originally, but he was known later as Aussie Bob because Robert Trimboli, although he was born and bred in the Griffith Calabrian mafia circles, he had become an apprentice mechanic and had grown up in sort of normal Australian uh, style and he married an Australian-born Anglo woman and had a heap of kids. And Aussie Bob was a guy who managed to straddle both cultures the Calabrian mafia culture that he was born into, but also the sort of knockabout race crowd, bookmakers, punters and gangsters from the racetrack. So he he knew both sides of the fence. And he was very good at forming new friendships with all sorts of people at the racetrack and elsewhere. So he would know lawyers and police and all sorts of useful people. Terry Clark had run against a mutual friend. I think Clark's offsider, Jimmy Shepard, used to punt and all that. So he knew Trimboli. Everybody knew each other either personally or by reputation in the underworld and so on. And they all knew a bit about laundering money. And of course, money gets laundered at racetracks and casinos. So they would all rub shoulders at some point. So Clark seeks out Trimboli and says, I need to get rid of these two, Douglas and Isabel Wilson. And Trimboli says, oh, I think I might be able to help you there. Bloke I know did a job for me a couple of years ago. Well, he was referring to the very cold-blooded killing of the aspiring politician from Griffith, Donald McKay. And so Trimboli says, I'll talk to the man that did the job for me in Griffith. And he seeks an audience with Jim Baisley, known as the Iceman and many other names, who is an old-time punter and docker, a very ruthless killer. Bit of a loner, used to live with his ever-loving wife Lillian, and they would breed dogs. I think they bred poodles. Regular listeners of the podcast will remember that we talked about Jimmy Baisley a couple of episodes ago. But Baisley was a stone killer. He was quite happy to kill anybody for money. And he had killed McKay in Griffith back in 1977. And this time he agreed to kill the Wilsons. And he was given a clear message which came from Clark via Trimboli. He said, I want you to kill these two. And before you shoot them, I want you to tell them this is for talking to the police so they would suffer completely and understand why it was happening. And the message also was, we want you to kill their dog because if their dog is not shot, no one who knows them is going to believe they've left the country because the cover story is they've left the country. If you don't kill the dog, everyone will know that something bad's happened because they would never leave the dog. So I want you to shoot them, shoot the dog, 
and take their car to the airport at Melbourne and leave it in the long-term car park because that way it'll look as if they've skipped out of Australia on a false identity and that'll cover it up for a long time. Well, Basley grudgingly agrees. He's quite happy to shoot the Wilsons, not a problem. He'd do that, you know, before breakfast. What he doesn't want to do is kill their dog and he actually agrees to kill their dog but he questions it. He says, why would you kill their dog? Why would you off the dog? The dog can't talk. And it was explained to him why. And he said, oh, all right. Anyway, when push comes to shove, yes, he shot the Wilsons, but he didn't shoot their dog. And the Wilsons died on a Saturday. And on the Monday, their dog is found wandering the northern suburbs of Melbourne, out around Coburg, and was handed into local council and eventually was identified. And that was proof, probably, that they'd come to a sticky end because they would never willingly leave the dog. But despite that, had Baisley buried them properly or dropped them out to sea or something, probably that crime might never have been discovered. But because he was lazy, like nearly all crooks, and buried them in a shallow grave down at Rye, only a few blocks away from a house that he regularly stayed in on his holidays with his ever-loving, dog-loving wife, he probably would have got away with it. But being lazy, he popped them in the shallow grave, close to a house that he was known to use, covered them with sand, which foxes and dogs could dig through easily, and they were found. And that is the story of how Jim Baisley was arrested and charged with the murders of the Wilsons. So who was Terry Clark? Well, his past was investigated by the late Richard Hall, who wrote an extremely good book about Clark called Greed. Hall painted a picture of a small-town loner, a skinny kid with a chip on his shoulder but without the physical or mental gifts to put him above the rest of the herd. There was nothing about him that marked him as special, except one thing. He was determined that he was going to be number one, that he was going to stand out from the others. He did have an ego. But instead of working at legitimate things to achieve his ambition, he always wanted to do it the wrong way. Now, Terry Clark came from respectable beginnings, his father, Leo Clark, was the son of a farming family. He lived in the provincial city of Gisborne in the North Island, the easternmost city in the world. Leo, good old Leo, as they called him around Gisborne, worked at the local abattoirs, freezing works. And then later, when his kids were a little bit older, he bought a pie cart that sold pies, fast food, that sort of thing and made more money and he bought a better house and did a little bit better. And later on, he started a driving school. So Leo was a hard-working, decent citizen who worked hard and went from being a wage earner to running his own small business. And along the way, achieved quite a reputation as a good community man. He was in the local surf life-saving club and rugby clubs and all those sort of things. So everybody thought he was a, a good guy. And indeed, Terry's brother Paddy was a hard-working and fairly gifted student who ended up one of the professions. But Terry was always trouble. At school, Terry affected the sort of rocker haircuts. He used to roll his own cigarettes. He used to hang around the dancers and get up to no good. Back in an era when people didn't carry knives, he carried a knife. He got into trouble here and there with the police. And as soon as he possibly could, he moved to Auckland, to the big city, and in the early 60s, there he was, a teenager in Auckland, working as a welder's assistant, marrying the first of his many wives and getting into trouble with the police. He started out, you know, breaking into cars. He soon was doing burglaries. 
And by the time 1970 came around, he was doing safe jobs, blowing up safes and things like that. In 1971, he gets caught in the city of Napier blowing a safe and he gets put away in prison on a five-year sentence. In fact, he got out after about three and a half years in 1974. And when he got out, even after that relatively short term away, the criminal world had changed. All of a sudden, drugs were in and safe cracking was out. And Terry Clark was one of the first to see the potential of the drug trade. And that's how he got his start, in the mid-70s in Auckland, New Zealand. It was in this time, when Clark had got out of jail in the mid-70s, that he met Martin Johnston. Now, Martin Johnston was a different kettle of fish. He was a private school-educated guy. He was quite a fashion plate. He dressed well. He was a bit dashing. He was extroverted. He was friendly and relatively charming. He wasn't good at planning things. Uh, He was a bit scatty, and he probably had a taste for his own products. He probably used a few too many drugs, as well as sold them. But Clark and Johnson saw something in each other, especially back then, that didn't last. Johnson was charming and he was gregarious, but he wasn't as ruthless or as resilient as Clark. One thing they had in common, beside their taste for easy money, was, back then, a taste for boats. And Johnson owned a speedboat that he used to pick up contraband from the ships that came in. He would bribe sailors on the ships that ran up and down the coast and came across from Australia and from Asia. He would bribe the sailors to throw contraband over the side in fuel drums that would float, and he would go out in his speedboat and pick them up. And that is how they started to bring in marijuana from Asia. Clark worked in the shadows, but Johnson always looked for the spotlight. It was one of the differences between them. Johnson put together a syndicate of backers to buy a 36-foot boat called Brigadoon, which was captained by a guy called Peter Miller, who they both knew. And their plan was to send Brigadoon over to Southeast Asia and to buy half a million Thai Buddha sticks. These are marijuana. Clark didn't invest in this syndicate but he agreed to become a wholesaler for the operation and he agreed to pay $3.50 for each stick when they were landed, which meant that if 500000 were landed, he would owe them $3.50 times 500000 which is a lot of money. The voyage of the Brigadoon was almost a disaster. It broke down, they had troubles. In the end, they had to pay an Australian trawler quite a lot of money to tow the Brigadoon all the way from Australian waters over to New Zealand. And by this stage, of course, the authorities have twigged there's something going on and were supposedly keeping an eye on the progress, the very slow progress of the Brigadoon. But in fact, when Brigadoon got to New Zealand, it was running so late that the surveillance had broken down, that the police were no longer looking out for it because it was running so far behind schedule, which was just one of those lucky things or unlucky things. Even then, the syndicate's speedboat broke down and they had to bring in their cargo of 36 bags of Thai Buddha sticks by rowing boat, which they managed to do. Clark took delivery of 458,000 sticks. Johnson cleared about $1 million plus the yacht that he owned. Eventually, Clark cleared about a million dollars too, retailing the sticks at $7 each. He's paid three fifty. He doubled his money. And other partners, a local solicitor and a Greek businessman, also made a handsome profit. At a time when people work for as little as $10,000 a year, it was enough money 
to set up a legitimate business and go straight. But Clark knew what he was up to. He was going to move into heroin. In late 1975, he persuaded a woman called Valerie Kairua to smuggle some heroin back from a Fiji holiday with her mother. The idea was that Valerie and her dear old mum would bring in two cartons of cigarettes from Fiji, but indeed inside the cartons were heroin, not cigarettes. But Clark fell out with Valerie and she must have dobbed him in and when the police raided Clark, they found the empty cigarette carton, but not the heroin. However, there were some traces of heroin, which was enough to charge him. And so in the new year of 1976, he was charged with attempting to import heroin into New Zealand, but he got bail. And as we know, he jumped bail. He went to Sydney and organised the meteoric rise of Australia's first international drug cartel. In just two years, it became a fabulously wealthy and powerful organisation. But already, it had the seeds of its own destruction in Clark's greed and ruthlessness, because his willingness to kill those who worked for him meant that they were willing to turn against him. And that was the beginning of his demise. More about that next time. Thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Rate it on whatever platform you're using. Leave a comment. Tell your friends. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.